Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Please take your seats. This evening's reading is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and you can find this on page 1178 in the Church Bibles. Page 1178. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me add my um, welcome to Pete's. Is the microphone working? I can never tell. Is it? Pete thinks it is. Yes, it is. So I just... Yeah, definitely confirmed. Um, especially if you're new this evening, then let me welcome you. It's brilliant that you've made it here with us at the start of this new year. And um, do come and say hello after the service um, if we've not met before. Actually, that's probably about a third of the room. Uh, but anyway, try. I'd love to meet you. I've got a bit of time after the service. Well, I wonder if you ever feel, if you're a Christian, if you ever feel like your Christian life is just a bit weak, not as rich as it could be, like a glass of um, orange squash that's been over-diluted. You know there might be a little bit of real fruit in there somewhere, but it's just not as sumptuous as it might be. Oh, you believe in Christ. You do. You live for his gospel. But you're also aware that you're just not as excited and as joyful as you could be. And what's worse, you know you want more joy. You want more commitment, but you're not even sure how to get it. Sometimes you find other Christians just a bit frustrating, annoying. Sometimes you're scared of the opposition you might face for speaking about Christ in your school or your workplace or amongst your family and friends. 
Sometimes you're just anxious about the rough and tumble of life. And somehow your love for Christ just is a bit weak. Oh, you are a Christian, but you want more. Well, if any of that ever describes you, then Philippians, can I say, is the right letter for you. You see, Paul was writing to a church that had been doing gospel work from day one. Did you see that in verse five? Your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, they'd even just sent Paul a financial gift through uh, one of their number. It looks like it might have been a sub-treasurer, Epaphroditus, who'd gone hundreds of miles to deliver this money to Paul. He'd even almost died en route. We'll meet him in a few weeks. Oh, this was a church that knew what it should be doing and did it, sometimes at great cost. But Paul knew that there was more on offer for this church. That their gospel partnership could go from strength to strength. Check out verse 9. He wanted their love to abound more and more. Philippians is a more and more letter. He wanted them, verse 11, to be filled with fruit. I wonder, have you ever seen those um, adverts for fruit juices where they tell you how many um, oranges or guavas they've managed to pack into each bottle of juice? Well, Paul wants to take already fruity Christians, if you like, orange squash Christians, and help them become full-on orange juice Christians. He wants to pack more fruit in. But how? How do you go about taking a church that's basically doing all the right things already and help it push on even more? Well, Paul himself, I think, models for us how to do it, doesn't he? It's all about growing in this. All about growing in valuing Christ. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What does that mean? To, to me, to live is Christ? Well, I take it it means at least that Paul has found life in Christ, eternal life. Paul has found purpose in life in Christ. What gets him up in the morning? What does he live for? For Christ. Paul loves Christ so much now, values him so much that it's even transformed the way that he sees death because death is now the way to get to be with Christ face to face. So death has become gain. Paul values Christ. I wonder, do you have room to grow in valuing Christ like Paul? I know I do. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes I really can echo Paul's words from the heart at least a bit. Uh, this past week, I was walking to Tesco's, probably for some orange squash. We get through a lot of it in my house. And I was just hit by the thought that one day, I am going to see face to face my maker, the king of the universe, who loved me and took on flesh for me and died for me, that I might become a citizen of heaven forever. Where, when I get there, he will spend all eternity showering me with his gifts of love and grace. And actually, genuinely, the thought had me almost in tears of amazement. But it passed quickly. And I have to say that more of the time this week, I've been um, moved to joy and excitement by um, the FA Cup. Man, you, 
putting three past Everton. Sheffield Wednesday, my adopted new home, um, beating Newcastle. What was going on there? Or I'm get, I get more passionate about the latest twist in Amy's current Netflix soap. Not that I enjoy her Netflix soap, of course, I, I want you to know. I just watch to support her in her hobbies. You see, our theme verse, it could be a depressing thing, couldn't it? Just leaving us feeling like rubbish Christians. But I want, as we study Philippians, to reframe any feeling of inadequacy. Let's not make Philippians about how rubbish we are. Let's make it about how amazing Christ is. How great must he be if a person, a human person, could say what Paul said about him and feel what Paul felt about him. My point is this, lovely church family. You do already know something of the joy of knowing Christ. You do. I know you. You do. And you have seen some fruit, so much fruit, in fact, in your life from the joy of knowing and loving him. But all I'm saying is this, that in Philippians, Paul says there is more, more on offer, more joy, more fruitful partnership, more love. And it all comes from more of Christ. As Paul puts it again next week in chapter 1, verse 25, he longs for them to make progress in their joy in the faith. What a beautiful way to think of a minister's job. My job's not just to teach you the gospel. My job is to work with you for your progress in joy in believing in Christ. Isn't that incredible? What a privilege. Will you work with me and Pete and Will as we preach through Philippians? for your own sake, for your own joy. Don't you want more? If you like, the central idea of the letter, I would argue, is that valuing Christ more produces more fruitful, more joyful gospel partnership. Okay, can you, can you get your heads around that? Valuing Christ more produces more fruitful, more joyful gospel partnership. But what might that look like in practice? And how do you know if you are making progress? Well, I think we'll see that Paul's love for Christ actually bore love for gospel partners. It's often much easier to uh, love somebody who loves what you love, isn't it? The psychologists and uh, the marketing gurus say shared experiences and shared missions bind people together. So you get clothing companies who want to convince you that they're not really there to sell you clothes, but they're on a mission to protect the environment. It's weird, isn't it, how clothing companies sell us that line, and we believe it, and maybe it's true, I don't know. But if your mission, too, is to look after the environment, you will love that clothing company. You'll be bound to it through that shared mission, that shared value, that shared love. Or booksellers, do you know that independent booksellers are having a comeback? We all thought then that some big nameless company, well, it's not nameless, actually it's named after a, a South American florist, isn't it? Um, would put them out of business. But in fact, they're on the rise again. Why? Well, because they offer a, a shared experience. They have coffee shops where we can all come and share coffee together. And they have employed booksellers who love books so that if you love books too, you find that together you love books and you're bound to their company by that shared love. 
I wonder, is Paul's experience of Christ's grace, Paul's commitment to Christ's graft, his mission, is it something you feel binding you together with other Christians? Verses 3 to 8, 3 to 8 our first point today, we, we see quite simply, don't we, that Paul loved gospel partners. Paul loved gospel partners, 3 to 8. His tone in these verses is so affectionate, isn't it? If I read any other letter where somebody was speaking like Paul does to the Philippians, and I have many opportunities to do that in my house, because so many people have lived in it over recent years that lots of misaddressed envelopes come my way. But if I did open a letter that spoke like this, with this love and affection, I, I, I'd put it away. So intimate, it's so private. Look at verse 7. I have you in my heart. It's so tender. He lays his emotions so bare. It almost feels wrong to eavesdrop. But God has given us this letter for us to learn from Paul's love for the Philippians. The joy that they brought him. Just look at his prayer of thanks for the Philippians. Now, actually, we know that Paul was a very prayerful man, don't we? He gave thanks to God even for really troubled and troublesome churches. But what is special here is his unbridled joy as he thanks God for all the Philippians. Verse 3, I thank my God and every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Every prayer, all the Philippians, always joy. Wow. This church gets Paul excited. But what is it about them that makes them so joyful and thankful? Well, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They were planted by Paul in AD 52 or thereabouts. They were the first church in Europe. They hadn't forgotten Paul, though, when he was chased out of t town not long after. No, they'd supported him, partnered with him in the next five years of his ministry, particularly during his time in Corinth, it seems. But then it seems when Paul was arrested and imprisoned for five years, they kind of lost touch after he was arrested in Jerusalem. <coughs> but now 10 years after they were first planted, in about AD 62, Paul's awaiting trial before Caesar himself and he's at last received another gift from them. They've renewed their partnership with him, we'll see in chapter 4. In fact, actually, they've just remained his partners through thick and thin. And we'll see all about how they've expressed that partnership with him throughout the letter. Their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This Greek word for partnership, it's a difficult word to pin down. Because it is such a big word, it takes all sorts of different translations, uh, different English words to capture its meaning. Look at the end of verse 7. Um, all of you share in God's grace with me, Paul says. That, that word share, again, translates the partner word in Greek. Translated more literally, Paul says, you are co-partners with me in God's grace. It doesn't really work that in English, does it? But the point is this, that the Philippians had shared a common experience of God's grace. Something far more special even than discovering the joy of books, which, excitingly, uh, Justin Stilton are going to discover. But we've discovered something far more precious than that, haven't we? 
the grace of God, his undeserved kindness to people who are such a mess like us, people whose love is so dilute, people who do get frustrated with one another for selfish reasons, people who can't sort out what is truly valuable from what isn't and spend our time playing in the dirt when God, as C.S. Lewis put it, is offering us a holiday at the sea. What's wrong with us? And yet God loves us. He loves us. And has granted us righteousness in the gospel that is not our own. Has granted us citizenship in heaven, which we don't deserve. Has given us to one another to be a family forever. And together has given us to his son. That we might know his love forever. The grace that we have shared in. But notice also in verse 7, it it seems as though it was that grace that empowered Paul, and I I guess the hint is the Philippians as well, to muck in together with gospel graft. Verse 7, this business of defending and confirming the gospel. Do you see, they've got this shared experience and they've got this shared mission. The shared experience of God's grace to them in the gospel, the shared mission of getting on with gospel graft. What more do you want to bind you together as a group. And that is why this church gave Paul such joy. They were partners in the gospel. The state of some churches gave Paul sleepless nights, you know. But this was the kind of church that got Paul up in the morning with joy. As he looked at their lives, he wasn't just thankful for their past partnership, he was confident about their future. I am sure of this, he says, being confident of this, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Thankful, joyful, confident. That's what Paul felt when he saw this church. But you know, his feelings run deeper still. I wonder, can you say of anybody what Paul says of the Philippians in verse 8? I'm not sure that I can. Certainly not in a freshly squeezed orange juice kind of a way. But just look how he feels about his partners in the gospel. Verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now actually that won't take your breath away unless you've known something of the affection of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who, though being God, took on flesh that he might die for you who have not loved him, out of love for you, that you might be his forever. Christ Jesus, who prays before his Father that we might make it home to be with him forever, who longs for the day when we are united face to face with him. Do you know something of the affection of Christ Jesus? There is no affection like it. And Paul says, I feel that affection to you. Wow. And yet, oh dear, how far short I fall of feeling that kind of love towards anybody, let alone gospel partners. And the big question I need to ask is, what does my watered-down love say about what I really value? It's good to analyze, isn't it, what our feelings say about our values. Who you love tells you what you love. Uh, Do you experience any kind of bond with anybody in life? 
What is it that binds you together with them? What is it that you share? What do you love together? Do you experience any kind of bond with Christians? What do the bonds you do feel show you about your love for Christ? Where does Christ and his gospel feature in your kind of order of values? And so where do Christians feature in the order of people that you value? Often as Christians, we're taught not to be led by our emotions, aren't we? But to be led by the objective truth of the gospel. And I think that's a really helpful lesson to learn. Because our emotions, they go up and down. But if we trust in Christ, our status before God never changes. Because Christ, who died once for all for us in history, it's done. Christ never wavers in his affection for us. Don't be led by your emotions when it comes to your trust in God's salvation in Christ. He wants you. No matter how you're feeling today. But do, do let your emotions show you what's going on in your hearts and whether they're right before God. You see, Paul doesn't just think these feelings he has for the Philippians are optional. He thinks they are right. Or more literally, verse 7, righteous. It is right. It is righteous, he says, for me to feel this way about you all. So forward church, how's your righteousness? Or to put it another way, how are you feeling today about each other? Not how you're feeling about the weather or the latest FA Cup result or your careers or your retirement or even your pets. Some of which might be real, genuine and good causes for joy. But surely all of them should pale in comparison compared to how we feel about Christ and those who know his love with us, and those who work together for his gospel with us. But again, before we all get too downhearted about our diluted love for each other, and what that might say about our diluted valuing of Christ, I reckon I should probably say that if Paul were writing to us today, I think he'd probably have similar words of love to us today as he has for these Philippians. You see, we might be a bit weak in our love for each other, but I reckon Paul would look at us and go, there are genuine gospel partners whom I love. And I hope you can take some encouragement from that. I mean, we are genuinely working for the gospel. We preach the grace of God. And the majority of us here are bound together by that grace and our experience of it. There is so much work for the gospel at Fullwood in so many ways by so many people, up front a little bit, but far more behind the scenes. I came in on Thursday morning at 6.30, it was still dark, and the light was on in the kitchen in the church centre. I won't tell you who it was because they'd be embarrassed, but one of the church family sorting out the new kitchen, stocking it up, getting the pots and pans in the right cupboard. I came back later in the afternoon, I did some work at the back of the room because I was trying to find Ben. Um, he's a very hard man to pin down, despite his size. <laughs> and I heard somebody singing, my song is love unknown. My saviour's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might love me be. That song coming from the toilets. <laughs> As somebody who has experienced the grace of God, cleaned them out of love for you. I think and I hope I'm not wrong that we are the kind of church that Paul would love. A church that knows the grace of God in Christ. A church that works together for the gospel of Christ. And yet it is to a church a lot like all 
lot like ours that Paul says, look, there is more. There is more on offer. Well, after opening up about his own joyful feelings of love, Paul then prays, verse 9, do you see? That their love would abound more and more. Our second point, verses 9 to 11, Paul prays inside out for their values. Paul prays inside out for their values. So often the prayers in Paul's letter give us a real insight into the heart of the letter's teaching, don't they? And this prayer is no different. Did he notice that he prays for them inside out? Yes, he wants them to bear fruit. Outward works, I take it that is. But that will only happen if they first sort out what's going on inside them and what they think is really best, what they value, what they love. And this is my prayer, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. Do you see that this is first a prayer for the Philippians, values then for what they love, for what they discern as best. Those words, knowledge, that, that knowledge, it's not just a kind of dry intellectual cognitive thing. It's really getting something, really knowing it. The word depth of insight here, it's a word from which we get the word aesthetics. The ability to appreciate what is really beautiful. A word that talks about their perception uh, and their sense of what is truly wonderful. In the Greek originally, it's particularly about what is morally beautiful. Paul wants these Christians to know something really precious when they see it. And notice, if they can get their values right then they themselves will be changed to be, end of verse 10, pure and blameless. And the word pure here is really interesting as well because it's originally a word that you would have heard in the metal markets. It's about metals that are not mixed in with alloys. I got this wedding ring many years ago, 17 years ago, from Argos. There are a lot of alloys in here. It is not pure. It's not very valuable. It was all I could afford. But Paul says, I want you to be the finest gold, the most precious people you can be. And it comes through this moral purity as well, this blamelessness. In other words, if you get your values right, it will make you valuable. <laughs> and of course, that's why Paul values these guys so much, because they are getting their values right, at least to some extent. That's why he loves them so much. But there's more. Paul wants them to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see, of course, what makes Paul tick is not gold or things that are valuable in this world only, but the things that are valuable now and forever in the light of the day of Christ's judgment. His judgment day. The day he will say that was really valuable. That was what was excellent and best. 
Yeah, that piece of hoovering as you sung my song is love unknown. That delighted me. Paul wants them to have the kind of love that Christ himself will approve as best on that great day of decision when Christ will return to judge the world. And Christ, of course, unashamedly calls us to love him best of all. Because in loving Christ, we love the one who is love. And it does us no harm. And does no one else any harm. In fact, it is the hope of the world for us to love Christ. And to give our lives to telling the world about his love. That can save them from judgment. In anybody else's hands, that call to be loved would be just egotistical, wouldn't it? But not in the hands of the one who is love. Do you see how Paul's prayer sets the agenda then for the rest of the letter? If we can just grow in our values, we will be able more and more to bear fruit as Christians. You know, when we hear challenging teaching that exposes our need of more and more love, uh, sometimes I get the impression we think we have to go away and try harder to squeeze more love out of ourselves. We feel like we've squeezed the orange as much as we can already, but we're going to squeeze some more. And it doesn't seem to work. And as a church leader, when I see potential for more and more, my temptation is to lean on you and squeeze you harder and harder. Maybe to guilt you into more and more. The great teacher of the church, Augustine, used to say to his congregation, love God and do what you want. Which is a dangerous thing to say, isn't it? If you take it the wrong way as a a kind of, uh, what would be the word? Um, A license to license. That's not what he's saying. It's not do anything. He's saying genuinely love God and do what, what pleases God. Because loving him, that's what you want to do. Do you want to want Christ more perhaps? Well, look, even if you just want to want him more, can I say the answer is not to squeeze yourself? The answer is not to be squeezed by me or Pete. The answer is not to get yourself to the point of being driven by guilt to do more. No, the answer, well, actually, the answer is to ask God to work in you to change your loves. Ask God because it is in his gift to give you more and more. I mean, that should be obvious from the prayer of thanks in verses 3 to 8, shouldn't it? Because Paul doesn't thank the Philippians for their gospel partnership. He thanks God because this is fruit that God has produced. All they have been and done to date is all the work of God. Verse 6, again, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on. You know, perhaps the most obvious thing and the most important thing we need to note about Paul's prayer in 9 to 11 is that it is a prayer. It's a prayer. Paul doesn't just tell them what to value and leave them to get on with it. He will tell them what to value later in the letter. He's going to tell us loads about gospel work and not being afraid of opponents and looking after each other and caring for each other and loving Christ who has loved us. And yet... At the start of the letter, this is what he does first. He prays, God, change these people from the inside out. 
God, would you deepen their values? Would you change their grasp of what is best? Would you give them more love, changing from them from the inside out so that they bear righteous fruit? I've never been in a church before that has committed to a month of prayer the way that we have. I'm really excited by that. I'm scared by it because I know how rubbish my prayer life is. But maybe we could just work together as gospel partners for this most fundamental of gospel graces, coming together to experience the grace of God as we pray, Father, please help us change. Give us more love for your son and each other and the world around us, please. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could do that? Please help me do it. Remind me when I'm rabbiting on about how exciting the FA Cup is that there's something more exciting going on this month. Remind me, and I will try to remind you. Let's pray. Father, please, change our hearts. Give us more and more love. Help us to value what is truly best. Help us to have a sense of what is truly best. Help us to know your son and what he's like, his love. Help us to love those who love him as we share in wonder and awe at him together. Help us to love those who will work alongside us for the sake of his gospel in this world. Please change us, we pray. Amen.